Good morning, CBC. It's been such a joy to be here with you all and meet so many of you over the last few days. It's been full and very fun. Uh, We've been very full in lots of different ways, particularly with the food that we've eaten, so thank you on behalf of my family. We've also been warmly greeted by you, and my children have been kept warm by whoever donated those coats to us, so thank you, because... In Miami, we wouldn't really need them very much. Uh, But we are really happy to be with you this morning and happy to share from God's Word. So before we do that, let me just pray. God, we ask you to meet with us right now. Um, We ask that you are lifted up, that you are glorified in this time in your Word. Use your Word and the power of your Spirit to do only what you can do to convict us, Lord, to correct us where we need correcting, but ultimately, Lord, to change us so that we look more like your son, Jesus Christ, as a result. And we ask in his name, amen. Amen. So with the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth II, which was about six weeks ago now, there's been a lot of stories that have come out about her life. And one of my favorite stories is this one around the year 2005. She was out with her uh, personal assistant, her protection officer. She was in Scotland at her castle. She went out for a stroll, and she ran into a couple of American tourists who had no idea who she was. So they started talking to her. They made small talk, and then they asked the queen, so where are you from? And she says, oh, I'm from London, but I have a holiday home in the hills. She was talking about the whole castle. Uh, She said she'd been coming here on holiday for about 70 years. And they're like, oh, you've been in London that long? You must have seen the queen before. You must have met her. And she was like, no, I haven't, but my assistant has, the guy that she was with. And then the tourists start asking the assistant, like, what is the queen like? What is her personality like, et cetera? The whole time she did not let on at all that she was the queen. And then one of those two tourists gave their camera to the queen got next to the personal assistant because he had met the queen before and asked the queen of England to take a picture of them together, which she did. And then I think later she took a picture with them and they probably figured out after they got home who they actually took a picture with. So that story is pretty funny because it shows a lot about the queen and her humility and her character. Um, But what's striking about that story is that these tourists missed majesty standing right in front of them. And I wonder how many times we can get like that in our lives, where we are coming to church, where we are hearing from God's word, and yet if we're honest, we miss Jesus time and time again. Or even think about the gospel accounts where the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and teachers of the law, they were waiting and expecting the Messiah to show up, but he stood right in front of them, and they mocked him, they rejected him, they eventually beat him, and they put him on a cross. What about us this morning? Do we really know Jesus? Do we really know what he is like? Do we know his heart? Do we know his character? Or have we settled for merely knowing him by proxy? meaning somebody else knows, and we'll find out about Jesus from them. In other words, if Jesus was standing right before us right now, would we even recognize him? In his words, 
in his character. As we turn to God's word this morning, we're going to focus our attention on this essential truth about Jesus, which is the main point of this morning, is that Jesus is the humble king. Please meet me in the uh, gospel of Matthew chapter 11, if you haven't turned there already. That's on page 816, if you're using one of the pew Bibles around you. So in the, the New Testament, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, or Levi, was one of Jesus' followers who gave this account about Jesus. And at this point in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus already began his ministry. He was teaching, he was preaching, he was healing the sick. His disciples heard about him, they saw his works, they listened to his words. Some people around him doubted, though. And then others around him just outright rejected him, but they were kind of interested. They continued to follow him. Jesus then went on to continue after he sent out his disciples to to teach the truth about his word, the truth about the coming of the kingdom of God. And he offers for weary and broken and wounded sinners to find their rest in him. With all that in mind, let me read uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I'll read verses 1 to 6 for right now. This is God's word. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who was to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. For right now, we'll stop there. But point number one, if you are taking notes, is this that we'll see in our humble King Jesus, is that Jesus comforts the doubting. Jesus comforts the doubting. So in case you don't know, John the Baptist was this forerunner for the Messiah. He was supposed to make straight the way of the Lord. John, like Jesus, their mothers had miraculous births. And, and John's mother, Elizabeth, was related to Mary, so John and Jesus were cousins. And John's whole life was lived in devotion to Jesus. He would preach about the coming of the kingdom of heaven, about the coming of the Messiah to make way for Jesus to come. And even in John chapter 1, John sees Jesus approaching, and he says, look, here is the Lamb of God who's coming to take away the sins of the world. Telling people they need to repent and put their faith in that Lamb of God, which was Jesus. He lived his entire life in devotion to Jesus, and yet at this point, John was wrongfully arrested and imprisoned. So Jesus was preaching and teaching, which was his main ministry, and John from prison heard about what, was do- what Jesus was doing and what was happening. By this point, he had been in prison, most people think, for around a year, and he sent some of his own followers out to ask Jesus, are you the one who's supposed to come, or should we wait for somebody else? That question is a huge deal coming from John the Baptist. His entire life was devoted to Jesus, but he was arrested and put in in prison only because he confronted King Herod and his sin. 
So he wasn't some false prophet. He wasn't someone that was new to the faith. He was a true prophet, and he knew exactly who Jesus was. In fact, he baptized Jesus and then heard from heaven God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But now John's sitting in prison, and his view of Jesus is clouded by his suffering. And I wonder if that resonates with anybody here this morning. Maybe you're living your life or you're trying to live your life in full devotion to Jesus. You're not perfect, but you're devoted, following him and his ways. And yet, there's cloud after cloud after cloud of darkness and suffering that's hanging over your hearts and your lives. And maybe that's clouded your view of who Jesus actually is. I think it's pretty striking that this spiritual giant, John the Baptist, His doubts is actually recorded in Scripture for us. And I think it's because we can learn from him even at this moment of doubt in his life because he went directly to Jesus with his doubts. Kind of indirectly, he couldn't get out of prison, but he sent his disciples to ask Jesus directly, are you the one to come? He's direct. Are you actually the Christ or is somebody else going to come and actually fulfill the law? Is somebody else going to come and actually make things right. You see, John, like many of us in our lives, we, we often think that we know how the Lord should get his glory in our trials, our circumstances, and various situations. You see, John, John the Baptist knew the Bible very well. He knew about the law. He knew the prophet Isaiah predicted that this Messiah would come and he would set the captives free. And he thought, I'm captive. So I should be freed at some point. And yet, he wasn't. He wasn't freed. But he still went directly to him with his doubt, which was demonstrating faith to give Jesus the final say-so in his situation. And notice that Jesus actually responds to him. He doesn't say, John, I thought you were a real one. He doesn't say, you should know better and say, you already know this. There's nothing for me to say. But no, he comforts him by reminding him of what he's already doing. Jesus reminds John of all of his works. He goes back to Isaiah 61, and he's basically saying, I'm fulfilling that prophecy even right now, even though you're in prison. He says, the blind are are given their sight. The poor have the good news preached to them. The, The deaf hear, the lame shall walk. The brokenhearted are healed. The captives will be set free. He tells them exactly what he already knew about himself. He doesn't have a brand new message or a new slogan or something else. He says, John, this is what you already know. Let me remind you of who I am. And in our times of, of doubting, in our times of frustration and suffering, we don't need brand new information about Jesus. We need his mercy. We need his comfort. We need his help. We need his rest. We need to be reminded that he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So even when we doubt him, he is still at work in our lives, doing exactly what he was doing yesterday, doing what he will do continually until he calls us home. But notice at the end of verse 6, that that bit of introjection that, that Jesus enters there, for John. He says, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. 
And maybe some of us need to admit that we're a bit offended by Jesus this morning. And by that, he means things are going some way in our life that we didn't predict, we didn't expect, and we want them to change. And maybe we're a little offended that he hasn't stepped in yet. I can remember a time of my life, that same situation. We were in London at the time, and I got the news after a very long day that a good friend of mine died. Didn't know what happened or how it happened, and that just struck me. And for maybe nearly a week, just like, I don't think I can continue to do this. But what continued to ring in my heart and my mind, even then, was Peter's words to Jesus from John chapter 6, where he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus still has the words of eternal life. And we can continually go to him and trust that he's at work. So at this point, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds who are following him, who are hearing about his work and his ministry and seeing what he's doing. But he also addresses them directly because many of them did not listen to John in the first place. They didn't turn from their sin and accept Jesus as the Messiah. So he warns them of the judgment that would come if they didn't repent, which is point number two. Secondly, Jesus warns the wayward. He comforts the doubting, but secondly, he warns the wayward. And we start in verse 7, Matthew 11. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent have taken it by force. For all the prophets and and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus goes on here basically to let the crowds know who would have heard about John, who heard that he was in prison, and who maybe even heard about John's doubts, that John was not a false teacher, he was not a false prophet, he was a true prophet. And he was one that they should have listened to, but up to this point they didn't. In fact, in verse 9 he says he's more than a prophet. And then he says, he's greater than anyone who is born of women. But he also says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Think about that statement for a moment. If you are in Christ, he's talking about you, which is outstanding to think about. But he also says that the kingdom of heaven up till now has suffered violence. And there, I think he's directly talking about John in his situation, in his ministry wrongfully arrested, and he eventually will be killed. He wouldn't get out of prison alive. He's talking about John suffering for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his kingdom. He also says that John is the Elijah to come. 
with all of that said, that's a pretty impressive resume about John, right? And yet the people did not listen to him. They didn't repent. Look at verse 16. Jesus goes on to say, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge, and yet you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So John the Baptist preached the way of repentance. He warned people that they needed to turn from their sin and turn towards the Messiah, but they did not listen to him. And that's why Jesus says there, we played the flute, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge or a song of lament, and you didn't mourn. It's like either way you slice it, you didn't respond. They didn't respond to John's fiery call to repent before the kingdom of heaven is near, nor did they respond to Jesus being a friend of sinners and welcoming the weak and the weary. And that, in a strange way, should encourage us in our evangelism as we try to share the gospel with friends, coworkers, neighbors, etc. It's not about getting all the words right. If I just get all these four points, then they'll convert on the spot. It doesn't quite work that way. The Lord wants us to be faithful, but also faithful in prayer because he is the one who saves. So the people did not listen to John's words, but they also didn't listen or believe in Jesus' works, which is why starting in verse 20, Jesus continues and presses on in this conversation with the crowd, pronounces these woes on these unrepentant cities. Look at verse 20. It says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment in the land of Sodom than for you. A couple things I think we can pull from that section as an aside. Number one, miracles are not the point. Jesus is the point. Miracles are not the point. I think often we can get into that mindset where we just think if the Lord just does something miraculous right now, then all these people will turn and believe in him. But think about these crowds who were following him who still refused to believe what they would have seen with their eyes and what they would have also heard about, like Jesus turning water into wine, for example, or Jesus feeding the multitude or Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead, and yet they still did not believe in him. And that's why Jesus said if these miracles were done in places like Sodom, they would have repented long ago. Now, Sodom, that should bring, ring some bells, especially as you think about the book of Genesis. 
as you might be thinking of or you might remember from several months ago in Genesis 18 and 19, where Abraham is praying to the Lord on behalf of the people of Sodom, that the Lord would spare them if he would find righteous people there. And then he brings down the number all the way to 10, and the Lord says, yeah, sure, Abraham, we'll see. Question for the kids in the room, though. How many righteous people were found in the land of Sodom? None. Zero. And they were judged for it in chapter 19 of the book of Genesis. But Jesus is saying if these works were done there, they would have repented a long time ago. That should be a striking uh, indictment against these people. That shows how wicked these cities were because they had the Messiah right in front of them performing his works, and yet they still did not respond to him. So miracles are not the point. Jesus is the point. Secondly, judgment is coming, so we must turn to Jesus. Jesus there talks about a day of judgment that is going to come. And he calls them to turn away from their sin and to believe in him. That's what it means to repent. Or else they would be rightly judged for their sin. Maybe you're hearing, you're thinking, why judgment though? I thought God was a God of love and grace. We need to be saved or rescued, but from what? Like, and why? So growing up, I was a, a pretty good kid by most people's account. Uh, If I had any sin or dirt, nobody knew about it. And I was often very quiet. And when you're quiet, you can kind of hide behind people and everything. Um, I was considered as responsible. I made good grades in school. I stayed out of trouble. And everybody always told me how good I was. And then eventually I started believing it. So then I remember specifically in middle and high school when things would come up related to God or to religion it's like, God, yeah, I can, I, can, I can deal with that. But Jesus? Nah, I don't need Jesus. When people would say that you're a sinner, I would get mad at that. Like, no, not me. Have you talked to my parents about me? Have you seen my grades? Have you talked to my teachers? It's like, maybe all those other people need a savior. They need a crutch. They need Jesus. But me? Nah, I, I, I can do it on my own. Maybe you're here sitting thinking some of those same things. You hear words like sin or judgment, and you think, yeah, maybe some of those people. That doesn't necessarily apply to me. I'm good on my own. Or maybe that doesn't compute in your mind with a God who's supposed to be loving and kind. If God is a God of love, then why would he judge anybody? for what they do, what they say, how they live. Doesn't God love the whole world? Like in John 3.16, which is arguably the most famous and most known verse in the Bible. Any teens in the room, can you say more or less what John 3.16 is? Amen. Amen. Because God does love the world, doesn't he? He did send his only son, that whoever will believe in him will not perish and have everlasting life. But let's not stop at John 3.16. John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
whoever believes in him is not condemned. And that's good news. However, whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So God does love the world. We need to tell people that. He did send his son Jesus, as who all put their faith in him will have everlasting life. But why? So that they and so that we don't face the judgment that we rightly deserve because of our sin, which is eternal death and hell and eternity apart from God. So in other words, the judgment that Jesus came to take away remains on us if we don't turn to him. So God is loving, but he's also holy. And since he's holy and just, sin has to be punished. And that includes our sin. But the promise that God made back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, that he would send someone that would crush the head of the the serpent and that will redeem God's people. And that's Jesus, the Redeemer. And he's calling all people to turn from their sin and to put their faith and trust in him and in his finished work so that they can receive his mercy and not receive condemnation for their sin. So if you're here wrestling with that this morning, there's a bunch of people around you who would love to talk to you a little bit more. I'm not expecting you to to figure everything all out in one shot, but we would love to share with you how you can have your sins forgiven and truly forgiven by Jesus. But notice after all that Jesus said in this section, he didn't just walk away from them. He didn't just say, y'all didn't listen to John. Y'all ain't listening to me, so I'm gone. But no, the humble king continues, starting in verse 25, and here's what he starts to do there. Here's point number three. Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus reveals the Father. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So Jesus broke away from this extended teaching section, and he offered a brief prayer of praise to God and praised God the Father for his great wisdom as the Lord of heaven and earth because he's hidden these things from the wise and understanding, or the wise and intelligent. And yet he revealed it to little children. So what does that mean? I think that these things that he's referring to there is about everything that he was just talking about, meaning that the Messiah was going to come to ushering the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist paved the way, and yet the wise and intelligent missed him entirely. But the little children believed in him. Those little children, he's referring to the outcasts, the tax collectors, those who had bad reputations, the sinners who were kept on the outside of society. They didn't have all that background knowledge about the law and about the Torah and the Tanakh. They didn't know about all these things in the coming of the Messiah. And yet, many of them turned to Jesus. So those little children he's talking about were those who humbled themselves and acknowledged their need for a Savior. So God's wisdom was hidden in plain sight from the teachers of the law. They couldn't see and embrace the authority of Jesus, 
even though he was right before them. And yet, it was the Father's will to reveal Jesus Christ to the poor, to the outcasts, to the marginalized, to the weak and wounded sinners. If we are in Christ, that includes us this morning. Look at verse 27. Jesus goes on to say that all things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is a clear announcement of Jesus' authority. We might only think about Matthew 28 when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But here's it is in Matthew 11. He already has that authority, and he's exercising that authority. And notice that he doesn't mince words here. He says, all authority has been given unto me. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. And no one comes to the, to the Father except those who the Son reveals him. It's like he says in John chapter 14 when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But here how he's explaining, even in this section, how he unpacks how he's the one that reveals the Father to us. This is in John 14 verses 8 and 9. Maybe you want to read that later. But he says, after Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. He says in verse 9, Have I not been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. Because no one can come to the Father except through his Son, Jesus Christ. And yet he says it's his Father's good will to reveal himself to little children to infants, to the humble who accept their need for grace and mercy. That's who he reveals himself to. And yet, this glorious gospel is hidden from the so-called wise and intelligent, or the wise and understanding. So are you in need of mercy today? Do you need to be reminded of this kind of childlike faith and joy we should be having in Christ? Or do you feel sometimes that grace and mercy is no longer necessary for you? Have you become, or church, have we become so wise in understanding, so familiar with Jesus and his words, so familiar with his works, that we miss him day to day? Like those tourists miss the queen standing right in front of them. Has our faith become dull? Has it become just a mental exercise or all of our intellect? Brothers and sisters, let's not let our intellect, our schedules, or our serving crowd out the childlike faith and wonder we should have that Jesus would take in us. Because Jesus reveals himself to those who humble themselves. That's why elsewhere in the scriptures it says that we, we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and at the proper time he will lift us up, he'll exalt us. And we cast all of our cares unto him. Why? Because he cares for us. So one way we can constantly, daily, hourly humble ourselves is by going to God in prayer. Saying, I need you. I need your help. Casting our cares to him, trusting he cares for us, he hears us, and he will answer 
in his own time and in his own way. And lastly, point number four, which is verses 28 through 30, some of the most known and loved verses in all of Scripture, is what Jesus does here in point four. He welcomes the weary. Jesus welcomes the weary to come to him. Notice how long, though, it's taken to get to these verses. It's like this is the good stuff, right? And I don't mean by my length of sermon so far, but I mean like it's all the way at the end of the chapter. It's like buried at the end of it, right? So you have John the Baptist and his doubts. You have Jesus with this extended teaching section. He's, he's talking to the crowds about their unrepentance and warning them that they need to repent. He praises God. He says that he's the one that reveals the Father to us, and now he offers rest to those who would come to him. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, Jesus is still talking to the crowds here. Still, most of them at this time, they rejected him as the Messiah. They hadn't turned from their sin and turned to him. People who were lost and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, and yet he invited them to come. Jesus is saying that no one knows the Father except through me, so come to me and find your rest in me. But I wonder if you ever thought in reading these verses Why is Jesus assuming that these people need to find rest, that they're heavy laden or that that they're burdened? What actually burdened them? I think Jesus is directly contrasting his righteousness with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, with the burdens that the religious teachers were putting on the backs of people. And Jesus' strongest rebukes for anybody in all of the Gospels were for the religious teachers, for the scribes, for the Pharisees, those who knew the law, and yet they put load after load after load on people's backs. They put burdens on them. They didn't say, we want you to be like the Messiah. They said, you need to be like us. They were prideful. They were self-righteous. So maybe you can read Matthew chapter 23 later on, but I'll read a couple of sections, uh, a couple of verses from there, which shows that whenever it comes to these self-righteous Pharisees, Jesus turns up a little bit. He goes in. So look at Matthew 23, 4, or you can just listen. They, talking about the Pharisees, religious teachers of the law, says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move a finger to help them. Or down in verse 27, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. The only people he called hypocrites, by the way, were the religious teachers. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, yet within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and full of lawlessness. Why was Jesus known as a friend of sinners? Not because the the Pharisees and the religious leaders weren't sinners, 
They didn't believe that they were sinners. Like, I didn't believe that I was a sinner. Because all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory and all need to be rescued. And that's why Jesus came for the weak, for the weary, for the burdened to find their rest in him. Who Those who know that they're helpless, know that they're hopeless, know that they need grace and mercy and restoration. That's why Jesus came to this earth humbly. And that's even, even in coming to this earth, he laid aside his rights and all the glory on, in heaven, and he took on human flesh. And he took on rebuke and ridicule and scorn from people that he made. And then he went to the cross and took on all of our sin and all the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin because he had none. So he gave his life, but then he took it up again, showing that his father was satisfied. And he ascended into heaven, and he's right next to the Father in glory right now. And he's still calling weak and weary sinners to turn to him, even today. To turn to him right now in faith. If there's anyone here, you feel weak and weary and wounded. You are in the right place. Jesus says, come to me, turn to me, take my yoke, take my burdens, and I will give you Rest. You can find rest for your souls. And I'll also say to my brothers and sisters in Christ in the room, I'm not going to assume that we're not weak and weary and burdened this morning. So are you? Have you stopped going to Jesus with your cares for some reason? Have you added other yokes to your load? Or are you adding to other people's loads? Are there expectations that you're trying to meet and live up to that Jesus did not give you? Maybe they're your own or maybe they're coming from other places. Are you placing burdens that Jesus has not given to us on other people? Maybe even your brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem with reading the the Gospels and running up against these Pharisees is that we think that we're absolutely nothing like them. That those Pharisees, there they go again. How could they? How dare they? And yet, if we're honest, I know at least for me, I'm much more like a Pharisee than I care to admit. Where instead of wanting people to look like Jesus, I might be wanting them to look more like me and be more like me or think more like me. Or maybe instead of wanting people to go directly to God's word, we kind of add in things here and there that we think will clean them up a little bit faster. We say things to them that, they, that Jesus really didn't say. And let me just say, that's incredibly dangerous for any of us to do. That can be hard for us even as parents with our kids. What loads am I putting on my kids that Jesus has not put on them? It might be something for us to think about. But that's why we need to know what God's word says. That's why we need to share what God's word says. That's why we need to rightly understand it, rightly divide it, rightly teach it, and make sure that we're not impressed with anybody. And make sure that what they say and what they teach actually lines up with the scriptures. So as we minister to one another, as you minister to each other in this church, let's make sure we're not adding any burdens to each other that Jesus hasn't given us to add. And that we're pointing people instead to the light yoke of Christ. 
Now, when I say yolk, I'm not talking about eggs, in case you're wondering. But this was a device that would be used to hold two oxen together. I don't know about y'all up here, but I've never seen an actual live oxen in person. Um, but those, uh, those uh, yokes would work to keep those oxen in lockstep so that anything that would be carried, those loads, those oxen would be carrying equal weight. And they would walk in, in lockstep. Or maybe to put it another way, if you're carrying something like a table and you have some help, that burden doesn't feel as burdensome anymore. It actually becomes light the more help that you have. But the yoke of the Pharisees were heavy and too much to bear. The Pharisees basically looked at that table, for example, and said, go lift that, and didn't lift a finger at all for them to help. But we should know that no one kept the law perfectly. That's why we had to send the perfect law. That's why God sent the perfect law keeper, Jesus, to come to this world. And Jesus comes along and says, don't accept that yoke. Take on my yoke. Mine is easy and my burden is light. So maybe the yokes or burdens that we're allowing people to place on ourselves or that we're placing on ourselves or maybe the, the, the burdens that we have because we insist on going through whatever trial we're going through in our own strength. Jesus says, don't take that load. Don't take that burden. You're too weak. Take mine. It's light. My son, Timothy, who some of y'all have met, he's the three-year-old. He's incredibly cute, and he likes to be really helpful. So then he likes to help me when I need to lift things around, like a table, for example. And although he's very cute, he's not very helpful at that because he's three. So he'll like touch the table and kind of thinks that he's helping me and I let him think that he's being really helpful. But as a good father, I have that load. Because if I were to let that table go, that weight would crush him. And yet we have an incredible father who doesn't want us to be crushed under the burdens and weights. And Jesus says, give me your weight, give me your burdens. What you're trying to carry is way too heavy for you. And maybe some of us need to admit that this morning, that we're not strong enough, but that Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't share the load with us. He says, give it to me, I'll take it. And you take mine, which is light. It's hard to preach on these, uh, these pas this passage of Scripture without a reference to gentle and lowly. So I don't have many of them, but here's... At least one. There's another one in a bit. Here's part of what Dane Ortland says about these verses in Gentle and Lowly. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simple. Open yourself to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing that he works with. Verse 28 of our passage in Matthew 11 tells us explicitly who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus. All who labor and are heavy laden. So you don't need to unburden yourself or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift and not a transaction. Close quote. But Jesus wants us to come to him. And when he says come, that's a, a command. That's emphatic in the Greek. He's saying come now and receive rest. Don't think about it over lunch. He says come to me right now so I can give you rest. And then he also says something remarkable, remarkable about his heart. 
He says his heart is humble. Just take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Which he's basically saying, I'm humble and more humble still. Does that surprise us? That Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, through whom all things were made, describes himself as gentle and humble of heart. He's the Lord of all, and he said a few verses earlier that all authority has been given to him. So let's not get it twisted. Jesus still has all authority. He is the king of all, and yet he's kind. He's just, and yet he's gentle. He's mighty, and yet he's meek. And he gets to to share his love with us. We've turned from our sin and put our faith in him. He's our God. He's all those things in one. And since Jesus is the one who reveals the Father, the Father is humble as well. The Father is humble as well. We've had a lot of good meals and meetings and and conversations with people over the last few days. My favorite question so far, which I think is my new favorite question, hope you don't mind me sharing this, Molly, is when she asked me last night at dinner, what's my favorite attribute of God? I was like, man, I'm going to steal that question and use it a lot. And what I share with her is what I'll share now, something that's been in my heart probably for the last several months. It's what God says about himself in Exodus 34. And Exodus 34, 6 is actually the most repeated refrain in all of Scripture. It's what his people constantly go back to throughout the Psalms or in the book of Nehemiah or even in the book of Jonah. That's why he didn't want the, the good news to go to the people of Nineveh. He knew that, the peop- that God was just and merciful. Here's what Exodus 34, 6 says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that was my answer last night, which is like four or five attributes. I cheated a little bit. But, brothers and sisters, that's our God. He's merciful. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's full of faithful love for us. He's slow to anger. If you are in Christ, God is not angry at you this morning. He's abounding in love and mercy for us. And that's the God we get to call on day after day after day. And we need to be reminded of this because at times we forget it. And that's why we carry those burdens and loads on our own, because sometimes we think, God doesn't want to hear from me. He's not as patient with me anymore. Maybe he's a little angry with me. But no, we need to remember who God truly is because he has not changed. And we need to let him love us. Final quote from Gentle and Lowly, I promise. It's short. It's where he says that we need to repent of our small thoughts of God's heart. Repent and let him love you. We need to let God love us. Jesus welcomes the weary to come to him to find rest for their souls. But he also gives another brief invitation in verse 29, which is where we'll close. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So he's inviting us to follow in his example. So a few points of application as we close. We're called to live as Jesus, as if Jesus is king of our lives, because he is. We should live 
as if Jesus is king of our lives because he is. In our day-to-day, in our decisions, large and small, he's king. We should live that way. Secondly, we should live in light of his righteousness and not our own righteousness. Because we have none apart from Christ. Don't look to your week. Don't look to your bank account. Don't look to your Bible reading plan. Don't look to your prayer life for righteousness in Christ. It will not be there. It's in him alone. And he calls us to seek him and to serve him, not to try to earn any approval, but because we already have it. Thirdly, we should humbly receive his mercy because we can do nothing to earn it or keep it. He constantly gives it to his people. And lastly, CBC, let's continue to be a burden-carrying church. It says in Galatians that as we carry one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. Continue to carry each other's burdens. Our King Jesus is unlike any other king. He reveals the Father. He, he warns the weary and the wayward. He's gentle and lowly in heart, and we can go to him over and over to find rest for our souls. And so we see him face to face and enter rest forevermore. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are good to us. We are undeserving, but we love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. I will encourage my brothers and sisters today, encourage us all to put in place our rest in your hands, to go to you with all of our cares and our burdens, knowing that you will lift us up, to trust that you are truly the humble king. In your name we pray, amen.